You may be seated, and as you're doing that, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. That's where we'll be studying today. We are faithfully plotting through the book of Psalms when Pastor Eric isn't preaching. We started this process in summer of 2019, and now at the end of February 2021, we've made it all the way to Psalm 12. You can deduce two things from that. One, Pastor Eric preaches a lot. And if it's been a while since you've said thank you, make sure you do so soon. And commit to faithfully pray for his preparation and his delivery of the word most every single week here. The other thing that you can deduce is that if your favorite psalm is 139, be patient. Get comfy. We'll get there eventually by grace. And if Jesus comes before then, you won't be disappointed, right? Yeah. The psalms are a special gift to us as believers. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, we have an opportunity this morning to be instructed, to be strengthened in our endurance, to receive encouragement, and to strengthen and bolster our hope. So we're going to pray right now. We praise the Lord for this unique and wonderful portion of Scripture that we're going to be able to, uh, to review and to study and learn from together. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have given us your word. Your word is the very word of eternal life. And so I pray as we even sang together that you would speak to us and that we would be good listeners and doers and that you would speak so that the earth is filled with your glory. Do so today, even now in our gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Psalm 12 together. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the, the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Psalm 12 is a community lament psalm, a lament of the people of God in an increasingly godless society. David looks out from his proverbial front porch and sees faithfulness and godliness shrinking, and sees wickedness and decay increasing. And this is not just an individual cause for concern. It's a significant calamity for the people of God. It's a big problem for the entire nation. 
And so in the midst of this alarming situation, David cries out to the Lord and implores him to act, to do things that only he can do. Because God is the only one who can remedy all that is wrong. The only one that can impose justice where there is injustice. And the only one that can protect and preserve his people. And in light of the truth and reliability of God's word, David then commits to patiently trusting the Lord whether or not circumstances change. And that's a good model for lament. That's what biblical lament is. It's a prayer and pain that leads to trust. Lament invites us to grieve and trust, to struggle and believe. And if you want a good overview on lament, there's a great book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Some of you are smiling. I'm not paid on commission. But when you order, if you could please remember to enter the promo code Mark and my family really would appreciate it. (laughs) So the title of the message today from Psalm 12 is whose word will you trust? Whose word will you trust? And we're going to look at this psalm in three parts. Number one, in verses one through four, the threat of the wicked. Number two, in verse five, the oracle of the Lord. And three, the confidence of the righteous in verses six through eight. The threat of the wicked, the oracle of the Lord, and the confidence of the righteous. In verse one, on behalf of the nation, David cries out, save, O Lord. Some situations call for waxing eloquent. Others call for simple cries of desperation to the only one who can rescue, to the only one who can redeem. There's a beautiful simplicity to the way that David starts out this psalm. It sort of reminds us of the apostles on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 8, or the apostle Peter in Matthew chapter 14, who look around and they are, they are convinced that they are going to drown. And they cry out, Lord, save us. Well, in a very similar way, David assesses the situation in front of him as he looks out and sees the increasing threat of wickedness. He anticipates that he and the nation are going to be swamped, to be drowned by the growing threat of evil all around. Well, what's going on? Verse 1, the godly is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David looks around and he sees that the people who are faithful, reliable, committed to truth and integrity seem to just have gone. Where have they gone? doesn't say they seem to have vanished. And that's cause for concern. And it gets worse because in seemingly in the vacuum that the faithful have left, the wicked have rushed in to fill that, and that's all he can see. And what is true about the threat of the wicked? We learn that in verses 2 through 4. First, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Well, God's design is to love our neighbor, to build up our neighbor, to act in their best interest and to prefer them above ourselves. But here we see everyone lying to their neighbor. Well, what does lying do? It erodes trust. It creates division. It fosters an us versus them mentality. It's the polar opposite of love. And the word for lies here definitely includes deceit, but it also includes an idea of a vain and worthless words. They're not just deceptive words. They are 
worthless. They're words that are spoken but are essentially meaningless. They take up time, but they don't provide any lasting value. And that's not it. Not only does everyone utter lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips they speak. With flattering lips they speak. What's flattery? They're words that contain an element of truth or elements of truth, but are delivered with insincere motives. The words that are designed to advantage the speaker and manipulate hearer. You know, sometimes it's easy to think of flattery as not that big of a deal, but the Bible says a lot about flattery, and it says often it's the characteristic of people who don't know God. It's manipulative, manipulative, and can even be predatory. Listen to these verses. Psalm 5-9, a psalm that we studied a few months ago. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That's how flattery works. You warm the listener up, get them to lower their guard, lay the trap, watch them step in, and boom, you've got what you want. The Pharisees did this in Mark chapter 12. The Pharisees came with a question to Jesus. They said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, did the Pharisees speak the truth to Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. All those things were true, and yet their heart was deceptive. They were designed, they were wanting to manipulate him as well. Now, some of you kids know what I'm talking about. Some of you kids know what I'm talking about, right? Hey, Mom, you've worked really hard today. You know what? You should, you should take a break. You should, you should put your feet up. Just relax a little bit. You deserve it. And by the way, can I just say, you are looking great. Are, are you doing something different with your hair? Or maybe you started work, work. I mean, wh- what's going on here? Hey, can I go to my friend's house tomorrow? Right? You, know, you guys know who I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> hey, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a silly illustration. Flattery is no joke. Flattery is no joke. It deceives and it aims to manipulate. Just like a lying tongue, flattery is so destructive. No relationship, no community, no society can thrive where insincerity, mistrust, and manipulation reign. So we see here, the threat of the wicked is lies, it's vain talk, it's flattery. What else? It's deeper than that. We're told that the wicked speak from a double heart. The wicked speak from a double heart, literally a heart and a heart. Well, what's going on here? We're talking about words, and you can't speak from your heart. You speak from your lips, and yet we know from Scripture that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says that in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Any words, any actions, any behavior flows from our hearts. Our hearts, as we were reminded last week in Mark 7, is the real you. It's what is inside. Using Jesus' tree metaphor, our heart is the root and our words are the fruit. So in verse 3, the wicked speak from a double heart. In other words, they speak out of both sides of their mouths. That's not a physical comment. That's a moral comment, a reflection of their wicked hearts their words are not trustworthy they say one thing and do another they're hypocritical 
They'll say whatever they need to say to whomever they're speaking in order to get what they want. Duplicity, manipulation, and selfishness are on their lips because of what is ruling their hearts. All right, but wait, there's more. Verses 3 and 4 says that they make great boasts. And what do they boast? They boast to say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? As we just said, our words reflect our hearts. And in verse 3 and 4, there's a profound arrogance in the heart that overflows from the words of their mouth. Do you hear it? Essentially, this is what they're saying. We rule our own lives. We trust in our own resources. We'll live according to our own desires. We set our own standards for truth. We reject any authority over our lives. No one is going to tell us what to do. We are our own God. And we've seen this before in the psalm. Psalm 10, 3, and 4 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So can you see and understand why David is alarmed here as he looks out and sees all of this happening around him? These words, the heart fueling them, and their resulting actions are threatening to the people of God. Verse 5 says that the poor are plundered, the needy groan. Verse 8 describes the wicked as prowling on every side as wickedness is exalted. And these are not idle threats. They weren't for the people of God in Psalm 12, and they aren't for the people of God in Rancho Cucamonga in 2021. So let me just ask you, do the truths of verses 1 through 4 feel eerily applicable to you? If you're paying attention at all, it's not struggle to make a connection between what we're seeing and experiencing in our nation and around the world to what is being described in Psalm 12. And, you know, we could talk this morning for a long time about the increasing wickedness in our society. It's no secret, it's not subtle, that our country is hurtling in the opposite direction of submission to God's authority. We see increasing evidence of it every single day. And we could break down in detail the lies, the self-deception, the double talk, the redefinition of God's beautiful creative order, and the rage against God's loving and wise authority. And perhaps there's a time for that. But this morning, our greatest need is to hear from God. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need to hear from God. So let's take a look at verse 5 and point number 2. Point number 2 is the oracle of the Lord. Verses 1 through 4, we've seen the threat of the wicked. Verse number 5, the oracle of the Lord. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. In the middle of this psalm, the Lord speaks. 
Isn't that amazing? Now, we have God's word in front of us. It is all God's word. But here's a direct quote from the God of the universe in response to the threat of the wicked. Now, in Lament Psalms, it's very common for the author to ask God to do certain things. They recall truths about God and make bold requests about God so that God is acting in accordance with his revealed character and his promises. The word arise is common in these psalms. But in Psalm 12, rather than the psalmist asking for God to arise, God himself speaks. This is called an oracle, and we see it in a handful of psalms, Psalm 12 being the first, and in a few others, Psalm 60, Psalm 81, Psalm 95 would be a few other examples for you. But there is massive encouragement, hope, and confidence when God speaks. For a people who are understandably concerned about the growing threat of wickedness, we need this truth to give us confidence, perspective, and boldness. We need the truths of God to wash over our minds and our hearts so that we are saturated with who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do in the future. When we look around and things seem uncertain, when the winds of doubt are blowing fiercely and we're tempted to give into panic, we need to make sure that our feet are standing firmly on the rock of God's unshakable character and his unfailing word. This is the high point of the psalm, the climax of Psalm 5. So we're going to spend some time unpacking what God says to his people. I will now arise, says the Lord. Those first two words, I will. A declaration of God's absolute sovereignty, his lordship over creation. We talk a lot about sovereignty here at Grace Rancho. In fact, it's one of our core convictions I just want to read it to you this morning. One of our core convictions here is that we will proclaim the absolute sovereignty of God. It says this, The sovereignty of God is not merely a point of doctrine, we affirm. It's a beautiful reality we rejoice in. We believe that God is completely sovereign over the molecules, the supernova, and the hearts of men. He is sovereign over our suffering and our salvation. And it's because of his absolute sovereignty, we are absolutely certain he will keep his promises. So verse 5 of Psalm 12, God says, I will. And that's not an isolated instance. And just, we want to take a quick tour, a quick tour of some of the Lord's I will statements in the Bible. Those promises that he makes to his children. And let's look together and marvel and worship and rejoice in God's sovereignty. Now we're going to go rather rather quickly. So I'd say if you're taking notes, write them down. You may not have time to look all of them up, but I'd encourage you to do so afterwards. The first one I want to point out is from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, immediately after sin enters the world, God makes a promise. And he says, I will put enmity between you and Satan, your adversary, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Immediately after sin enters the world, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send a redeemer. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he makes a solemn promise to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed and I'm going to make you a blessing. And that the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing is Jesus Christ. We know that. Well, moving on to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, God is speaking to his people who are in bondage in, in, in Egypt. He says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Fast forward now to 2 Samuel. God makes another promise to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will Raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One more promise, one more signpost pointing to the Messiah who is going to come and rule and reign over an everlasting kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 46, the nation is rebelling against God, largely living in unbelief and doing their own thing, doing what is right in their own eyes. God says this, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, Things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. One more from the Old Testament. The, the promise of a new covenant that God is going to make with his people. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Again and again and again, God says, I will, I will, I will. I'm making promises to you. And my word is absolutely reliable. Well, let's look at a few here in the New Testament. God didn't stop making promises in the New Testament. Mark chapter 10, 33 and 34. Jesus was born. He lived and he, he came for a reason. He came to die, to be the sacrifice for our sin. He said this, See, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And after that, Matthew 16, 18, one of the verses that we look at, and we love, and we treasure, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what about for individual people, children of God, Sons and daughters of God, what does he say? Listen to the words in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And before Jesus ascended to heaven, 
He says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in John 14, 3, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And where's all this headed? Where's all this headed? The marriage supper of the Lamb. We already read about that in Isaiah chapter 25. But but Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Until that day, until that day, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 reminds us, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And those are just a fraction of the promises that God gives his children. When God says, I will, we can take that to the bank. Contrast that with the wicked. The threat of the wicked is real. What does God say about when the wicked makes an I will statement? James chapter 4 tells us. God responds, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. Your life is a vapor, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But when God says I will, we can know that it is absolutely trustworthy and he will always keep his promises. So when God says I will, we're reminded of his absolute sovereignty as creation. And we gain a proper perspective on the threat of the wicked. God's word increases in our minds, and the threat of the wicked, by contrast, will diminish. Aren't you thankful that God says, I will? Aren't you thankful, humbled and thankful, that we have a God who's absolutely sovereign and who always keeps his promises? Amen. So God says, I will. But that's not all he says. God says, I will now arise. I will now arise. Isn't God loving to insert the word now? And this is important because God is not only sovereign. He is perfectly wise. God is never passive. He is always at work and his timing is always perfect. Some of you perpetually late have no idea what that means. All right. But this isn't about you. This is about the Lord. All right. Hey, do you remember the scene at the very beginning of the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Yesterday, I was, I was talking to some of my friends, and one of them, a faithful brother, says, Mark, we do have a younger church here, so you probably need to use more modern or recent illustrations, all right, just to appeal to a, a little bit broader audience here. He didn't come out and say I was old, um, so that's fine. All right, so here's a reference from pop culture from the last 20 years for all you whippersnappers out there, all right? In the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf arrives, and Frodo, the main character, says, You're late. And Gandalf, just like a a wise wizard said, he responded. He said, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And that's good. And you know what? Our God is never late, and he's never early. He arrives, and he works, and he arises precisely when he means to. You know, as we reflect on God's sovereignty and we gain comfort from it, the wisdom that accompanies it, it's important to remember that his timing may be different than ours. Have you ever disagreed with God's timing 
battling for belief in the midst of a difficult trial? Yeah, that's an easy one. <laughs> that's an easy question. The answer is yes. Of course we have. We all have, right? And you're in good company. One of the common questions in lament psalms is, how long? How long, O Lord? Lord, I know your character. I know your promises to me. But I'm in the midst of a trial that just won't quit. How long? If we were to pause here and pass around a microphone, even in this modest-sized gathering, we'd hear story after story of brothers and sisters in the midst of a variety of painful trials. Physical, emotional, relational, spiritual And it's hard, it's confusing, sometimes the pain is great. We're tempted to believe that God's timing isn't best. Perhaps that he's forgotten about us or that he might not be faithful to his promises. Psalm 12, when God says, I will now arise in in light of the threat of evil growing, that's encouragement for us. It's encouragement for us to keep crying out to God, to keep turning to him, to save, to bring relief and to comfort. And in the meantime, when his timing might be different than ours, we can be encouraged and strengthened by God's use of the word now. It reminds us that God is sovereign and he is wise. He's got a plan. Nothing is wasted. He's never late and he's never early. He arises precisely when he means to. So let's look at that next word. God says, I will now arise. He is sovereign He is altogether wise, and the word arise reminds us that God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. We've talked about one of the requests that we see somewhat frequently in the Psalms, and that's for the Lord to arise. The Lord never sleeps. The Lord never sleeps. So the request to arise is a plea for God to act. And here he says, I'm going to arise. I will now arise to enter into a situation and right what is wrong. To deliver justice, to defend my people, to be faithful to my promises. This word or this word picture of God arising points back to Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Numbers 10, 35. When the Israelites were in the wilderness and it was time to move. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. When we see this word arise, we can see that God is a righteous judge. And there's two components of that. One is that he will judge the wicked. He will judge the wicked, those who have exalted themselves against God and are threatening God's people. In verse 3, we already see that David has asked God to cut off the flattering lips and the tongues that make great boasts. This is not just a desire. He's making a bold request. Lord, act as the judge. Arise, judge them in righteousness. Put an end to their ability to speak and act with pride and seeming impunity. Stop them from boasting. Cut off their wickedness. Psalm 7, 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. So there's a judgment for the wicked, but there's also an aspect where God, in response, is defending his people. Verse 4, the poor are plundered, the needy groan. But our God is a righteous judge. 
Not only will he judge the wicked in doing so, he will defend the righteous. He will defend his people. Psalm ten twelve. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. What a gift. The Lord, the one who is completely sovereign, the Lord over creation, the one who is altogether wise, the one who is the righteous judge, gives us this promise. I will now arise. And before we move on, let's just not leave this. Before we remember, who is the one who's speaking? It is the Lord. If you look in your Bibles in verse 5 there, you see the Lord in all capital letters. That's an indication that it's the Hebrew name for Yahweh, a very special and important name for God. It carries significant meaning every time we can see that. We see it five times here in Psalm 12 and almost 700 times in the book of Psalms in total. The Expositor's Bible Commentary explains it this way. Yahweh is the name by which the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed himself to ancient Israel. It is the name of self-communication and covenantal love. His name assures his covenantal perfections and the fulfillment of his promises. Let me say that again. His name assures his covenantal perfections and the fulfillment of his promises. Yahweh is the glorious king, yet he's close enough to hear and respond to the prayers of his people. This Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, he is the eternal and transcendent God, yet he, had, he has drawn near to his people. Listen to what I, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says about his character. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As the judge, God arises in power to deal with the wicked, but deals with great tenderness and care and compassion with his people. And he is our speaker in verse 5. That's who shows up and says, I will now arise. Now in contrast to the wicked, again, the threat of the wicked is still there. It's very prevalent. What do we know about the wicked? They make great boasts. But in verses 1 and verses, verse 8, we have a clue. The wicked belongs to the children of man. The children of man, they are mortal. Any person, any ruler, any nation, no matter how mighty and powerful on this earth, has an expiration date. Not so the eternal transcendent Lord. And if you want to study this more and be encouraged even more, take a look at Isaiah 40. It presents an incredible contrast between the temporary nature of the wicked, the weightlessness of even the greatest nations of the earth compared to our transcendent, eternal, holy creator God. All right, so let's briefly review. We began by looking at the threat of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. David's on his front porch, looks out, feels very alone as the godly seem to have vanished. Not only that, he's frightened as the wicked are the ones that seem to be thriving. They speak empty, deceptive, flattering, and boastful words that reflect a heart that absolutely rejects the authority of God in their lives. Frightful words with accompanying action that represents a real threat, a genuine threat to the people of God. But then, verse 5, the oracle of the Lord. He speaks, 
I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So we have two speakers, the wicked and the Lord. Two competing authorities, the children of man who make great boasts and the Lord. And two realities that the righteous live in light of. The growing threat of evil and the promise from a sovereign, eternal, all-wise, righteous God. So how should the righteous respond? Psalm 12 shows us. Verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. I'm not sure how pure that is, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't get any more pure than that. The words of the Lord are always pure. And then just to make sure that we understand, the psalmist says, no, it's like they're purified seven times. Ivory soap, 99.44% pure. It's got nothing on the words of the Lord. How's that, Michael? Is that okay? Recent enough? Good? Okay. Two for two. All right. Hey, what does it mean? That God's words are pure. That's interesting. God's words are pure. What does that mean? Simply, his words are completely trustworthy. God's words are completely trustworthy. Listen to Psalm 1830. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. The point of Psalm 12, in contrast to the lies the duplicity, the flattery, the great boasts of the words of the wicked, God's word are 100% true, 100% pure, 100% trustworthy. And in light of this truth, the psalmist has a firm, settled confidence. You can see that in verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You, O Lord, will keep your word. You have made promises and you will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. You will keep your word and you will protect your people. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. Now that we've covered all seven verses of Psalm 12, we should probably go home, right? Anyone want to close in prayer? What's for lunch? But, verse 8. Come on, man! On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Circumstances haven't changed. Isn't that interesting? On every side, the wicked still prowl. Vileness is still exalted among the children of man. The threat isn't gone. Danger still lurks for the people of God. Evil isn't cut off. The judgment isn't complete. In some ways, it feels like we're back to where we started in verses 1 through 4. Circumstances haven't changed, but what's changed? God has spoken. God has spoken. And his words 
are absolutely trustworthy. His power is unstoppable. And he always, always, always keeps his promises. And that's reason for confidence, perspective, joy, and unshakable hope. For David and the people of God in Psalm 12, and for the people of God in Rancho Cucamonga in 2021 and beyond. So, as we, as we close, there's three questions that I want to ask us to consider in, in application. The first question is, whose word will you trust for unshakable confidence? Whose word will you trust for unshakable confidence? Every day, we are bombarded with words from a thousand different sources. Whose word will represent the dominant reality in your life? When faced with the growing threat of evil, whose word will anchor you? Whose word will provide the ballast in the storm? Whose word will you turn to as your ultimate authority? Hey, we're in church. That's an easy one, right? The Bible. Yeah. Listen, we all have room to grow in this area. And let me challenge you as I challenge myself. Maybe you want to even take the time this week to perform an audit of all the words, of all the input in your life. What amount of time do you spend directly taking in God's word versus consuming other words, other types of information, scrolling through social media, catching up on the latest hot take on every last topic? Listen, our minds and our hearts are being shaped by the input we receive. It's inevitable. What or whom are you most being shaped by? Your favorite news source, your favorite politician, podcast, website. What do you look to in the morning? What about in the little snatches of free time throughout the day? What's the last thing you're doing before you go to bed at night? Guard your input. Brothers and sisters, there's absolutely no way that we will have a calm, assured confidence in God if the majority of our input is Netflix, social media, talk radio, or insert your favorite news outlet or whatever thing else there is out there, right? There's just no way it's going to happen. God has given us his holy word, the word that's sufficient for life and godliness, the word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, the word that nourishes and feeds us and helps us grow. So let's look to him. Let's really look to him, and let's trust in his word more than any other word. Isaiah 40 says, all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What amount of time and attention our devotion and devotion are you giving to grass? Listen, I'm not saying we, not saying we go all ostrich and ignore everything. That's not what I'm saying. The danger for most of us, though, including myself, is the opposite, where our minds, our hearts, our heavenly affections are clouded by too many vain and deceptive words. Words with an agenda other than bolstering your confidence in a sovereign, wise, and righteous God. In an increasingly wicked generation, we need unshakable confidence in the truth from Psalm 46.1 that says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And how are we going to know that? Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
So let's guard our input and be still before God and let his word be what fuels unshakable confidence in our lives. That's question number one. Whose word will you trust for unshakable confidence? Question number two. Whose word will you trust for joyful perspective? When we look around at the growing threat of evil, it's easy, easy to be discouraged, anxious, fearful, perhaps even alarmed. But there is a deeper reality, a more eternal, weighty reality that ought to give us joyful perspective. God is at work, and we can look back, and we can look forward, and we can look around. Look back and see God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Every single one of us has stories that share a track record of God's steadfast love in our lives. Every single one of us. Do we think about that? Do we call that to mind? We do well to call to mind what Lamentations chapter 3 says. I, will, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So we can look back and see God's track record of steadfast love and faithfulness. We can look ahead to God's and see future grace and future glory. God's steadfast love and faithfulness in the past are living proof that he is going to provide the grace you need in the future. A humble life of trust and obedience is going to be worth it. God's promises are true. Future grace and eternal glory are assured for his children. These trials are temporary. The wicked have an expiration date. Remember those verses we read just a little bit ago in Revelation 21. Keep your eyes on the prize. So we look back, we look forward, but we can also look around and see God's transforming power. So I invite you to do that now. Go ahead and look around. Look around. Make eye contact. Make it awkward, Chris. (laughs) Hey, what do you see? What do you see as you look around? You know what I see? Here's what I see. I see people who have been saved by the sovereign grace of God. I see people who have publicly declared their allegiance to Christ by being baptized. I see men digging into the word and taking seriously their responsibility to disciple their families. I see ladies studying God's word and memorizing scripture together. Families that are growing as faithful disciples of Christ and seeking to join Christ on the mission of making other disciples. I see believers persevering in dark trials, believing, clinging to hope that God is at work for their good and his glory. I see young people that are serious about making their one brief life count for Christ. Marriages and families that are being strengthened for the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters who are counseling one another on important heart issues. I see a church that's unified and on mission together. Verse 1, David was really concerned that he was alone. And sometimes we might, we might have that same sense of aloneness or, or fear. But you know what? You're not alone. The godly aren't gone. The faithful haven't vanished. Look around. They're right here, worshiping with you as members of the body of Christ. Man, and that's just one of the reasons that there's no substitute for getting together regularly here as the church of God, right? Summary, Christ is building his church. 
just like he promised to do all the way back in Matthew chapter 16, and we get the joyful privilege to witness it regularly. So we want to be strengthened. We want to trust in God's word for unshakable confidence, for joyful perspective. And last, whose word will you trust for eternal salvation? Let's go all the way back to the very first word of Psalm 12. Save. Psalm 12 talks about the growing threat of evil. And God said, I will now arise. God's people can be absolutely confident that his words are 100% trustworthy. But perhaps you're here today, or maybe even listening online, and you don't yet have a relationship with God in Christ. Well, you need to know that our deepest problem is not the physical threat of external evil. Our deepest, most eternal problem is indwelling sin. The, the evil within, which separates us from God. But we give God great praise this morning that he has acted in love to remedy our most significant eternal problem. He has done this in just the right way and at just the right time. Listen to these verses and rejoice together. Galatians 4.4, 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. And listen to Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He came. He died at just the right time. And Mark 10, 34 says, Jesus said, on the third day, I'm going to rise. And he did, forever declaring that he conquered sin and death and Satan and hell. At just the right time, God sent his son to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve so that he could die in our place and rise on behalf of all who would believe on him. And when you come to him with humble repentance and believing faith, you can be absolutely assured that he will place you in the safety that you need, safely protected from his righteous wrath against sin and safely adopted as a member of his family. So if you've not yet trusted him today, I implore you, let today be the day that you trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the truths in Psalm 12. Lord, we want to look to your word to give us unshakable confidence, to trust your word for joyful perspective and for eternal salvation. So I pray, Father, that you would do that. Work in us that which is pleasing to you. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name.